we're in the middle of a little series, and literally in the middle, because it's a three-week series, and this is the middle of a three-week. So we're in the middle of a series uh, that we've called uh, Stranger Citizens and Family, and we're exploring this idea. The reason why we called it that was because as we started out last week, we started to talk about this idea that if you're a follower of Jesus, you live in this tension. And you live in a tension between, man, I live in this world and I kind of feel like a stranger and an alien and an exile sometimes, but I also live in the kingdom of God and, and he describes me, the Bible describes that as a, I'm a citizen, I'm a family. So how do you live in the tension? And, and what we established last week is that God's solution or God's instrument to help us live in the midst of that tension, and you feel it if you're a follower of Jesus, you feel the tension of your belief system in a world in which we live, and how do you live all of that stuff out? Well, Jesus' instrument or the tool that he uses to help us live and even thrive in the midst of that tension is the church. And we started last week by uh, looking at this idea that the church is a pillar and a buttress. Remember that? That's a fun word to say. A pillar and a buttress of truth, not a truth, the truth. And we unpacked last week this idea that a couple of things. One, that the church isn't the destination. The church, you know, and we use this little analogy of an ocean liner versus a cruise ship, and the church is not the cruise ship. It's not, I get on board, and I enjoy everything that there is to do on, on board, and then I'm right back where I started, right? And, and sometimes we can treat church a little bit like that, like, you know, it's to entertain me, or it's to help me, you know, or it's to do all of these kinds of things. And by the way, we want to be the very best that we can be when it comes to worship and children and all that kind of stuff, but that's not the purpose. The church is not the destination. The church is the vehicle that God uses to move us from one point to another. And we established last week that what God is trying to do is he's trying to move us from being rebels, sinners, those who rebelled against God, to those who look, sound, and act like Jesus. That we would reflect the image of Christ, the image of God to the world in which we live. And the Bible teaches us that God uses the church to do that. Now, inside every single one of us are a whole, like billions, trillions, gazillions, if that's a word, I don't know. But we have, we're made up of cells, and inside, at our lowest level, and, and at the microscopic level, and inside every cell, there's a genetic code or a DNA that has the instructions for what that cell is supposed to be producing. And so if this structure called the church is supposed to be producing people that look like Jesus, then what's the DNA or the genetic code inside the church? Well, we discovered last week that Paul, throughout his writings, uses these three words that we oftentimes hear at weddings, right? But Paul had a bigger mission for that because he wanted us to understand that the genetic code of the church the code that contained the instructions for what we're supposed to be producing was these three words, faith, hope, and love. And last week, we, we established that faith is, is not believism. It's not me kind of trying to, I believe, I believe, I believe, right? Faith is actually rooted in something. It's actually rooted in the faithfulness of God towards us. It's called the gospel, and we, as followers of Jesus, never outrun our need of the gospel. We're always going to be in need of the gospel. Anybody perfect yet? 
Anybody, anybody? I mean, apart from my wife, she's out there in Sandy preaching today, and she's not here today, but you know, she's perfect, right? There's not one of us that are perfect, right? We haven't figured it all out. We never outrun our need of the gospel. We are dependent upon Jesus. In fact, the Bible teaches us in Acts 20 that, that, that life and our being are found in him. And that was what last week was all about. Now, you would think that this week I might be preaching, if I'm doing a series on faith, hope, and love, that this week would be... You're wrong. Aha, a twist, see? I want to keep you on the edge of your seats. So today, what I want to talk about is the second piece of the genetic code, and I'm doing this for a reason, doing it this way, but I want to talk about love. What's love got to do, got to do with it? What's love but a secondhand emotion? Some of you know that song, right? Yeah, you like that? Yeah. They won't let me on the worship team. I don't know why. But, but we as a culture are obsessed with love. In fact, love seems to be what life is all about. Just watch the Hallmark Channel. There are so many songs written about love, right? So many books, right? Movies. Like we are moved by love. Every single one of us wants to be loved and to love someone else, right? And we just love Every love seems to be what life seems to be about. And in America, it's really funny because I can say I love my wife and shoes. Right? Like, we love all kinds of stuff in America, right? We love cars, and we love smells, and we love good food, and we love candlelit dinners and movies, right? Toothpaste. How many of you have a particular kind of toothpaste? I love my toothpaste. Not really, but... But we are obsessed with love. And I was doing some research over the last couple of weeks, and there was this um, quote from an article that was written in The Atlantic by a French author in May of 1938. And this is what he said, commenting on how obsessed America is with love. America appears to be the only country in the world where love is a national problem. Like, everyone is trying to figure out what love is. In fact, in the culture in which we love, or, or we live, love can be a fairy tale, right? It can be this kind of utopia that we're all chasing after. Think about the movies and the books. You know, think about, like I've already said, the Hallmark Channel, right? Like, like it's this fairy tale that if I just had it, life would be perfect. One of the things that's happening, uh, and the other narrative that's being told in the culture in which we live, is that love is an illusion. You're never going to get there, right? There's no such thing as love. You suffer. You kind of wake your way through it. And, and there, there's all kinds of statistics around love and relationships and all the rest of it that are kind of unfolding because of these narratives. In fact, I read this quote. This was a pretty. <laughs> this might be one of my favorite quotes I've ever read. Uh, it's a, by a guy by the name of Mark Manson, and he was writing an article titled "The Brief History of Love." And I have fact-checked this, and there is one piece of information that is true. The rest of it's completely bogus. But um, but I thought it was a great quote, so I just had to share it with you. It says at some point. During evolution between Plankton and Bon Jovi, apes evolved the ability to become emotionally attached to one another. This emotional attachment would eventually come to be known as love, and evolution would one day produce a bevy of singers from New Jersey who would make millions of writing cheesy songs about it. The last part's true. 
We didn't evolve from apes, by the way, right? And love is more than an emotional attachment. But there are a lot of writer, songwriters from New Jersey that wrote about love, right? We love to love, and we love to be loved. In fact, we might, love might be the single, single greatest need in the human soul. Because when you find love, or when our souls are loved, they find security, they find happiness, they find identity in this concept called love. Love is a big deal in the world in which we live. And love is a big deal to God. But the challenge is that how you define love and where you, how you then live out love can lead us in one of two ways. One can lead to all kinds of pandemonium and chaos. And I think we're seeing that in our culture because all of us, whether you're in the church or in the community or the world in which we live, we have to answer the question, is love God or is God love? Let me say that again. Is love God or is God love? Now, sometimes because of the world in which we live, those who claim to be followers of God haven't always proclaimed love the way it really ought to be proclaimed. And, and there's been all kinds of atrocities. There's been all kinds of uh, negative things that have happened because followers of Jesus haven't always loved the way Jesus loved. Think about that on a macro scale, but you could also think about that on a micro scale. You've been around, and they're not, they don't go to this church. They go to the other church, right? But you've been around some Christians that haven't loved well. And, and, and because... Christians haven't always loved well, the logic goes something like this, that God couldn't be a God of love. And so let's take the concept of love, but let's take out the divine, abusive, mean, rigid, exclusive, judgmental elements out of love and just make love God. Let's just love each other. Make love, not war. Right? Be cool. Smoke the herbs of the earth. Wear a tie-dye shirt. Come on, let's just love one another because love is what's most important in this world. Now, initially, that sounds pretty alluring. I don't know about you, right? I mean, if we were just to make life all about love, if we were to put our hope in love and elevate love above everything else, everyone uh, would just love one another, right? Right? I mean, that's the conclusion, I would think. Love would, meet, love would meet the needs, right? It would conquer hate. It would conquer violence. It would regulate injustice. Resources would be shared with everyone. That's how love works, isn't it? Let's just love one another. But the problem, and it doesn't take a whole lot of effort, flick on your phone, turn on the TV, look in the newspaper, and what you discover is that love being God isn't working. Right? This philosophy or this concept of that love is God is not working. We still have greed. We still have hatred. We still have violence. We still have power struggles. We still, we still have all of the things that by elevating love above all else, we're trying so hard. So why is it that this concept or this philosophy that love is God does not work? And I think it's this. It's that this ideal then is, a, is something that defines itself by itself. So what is love? Or maybe you hear the phrase, love is love. 
In other words, that phrase, what it literally means is that love defines itself. But the problem with love defining itself is that no one then really knows what love is because there's no standard or no definition for love. And so the challenge is that we all have to come up, if love is God, if love is love and love is the thing that's above everything else, then we all have to come up with our own definition for, of love, which ultimately means then that we're God. We're the ones that define who love is. And even in a room this size, then everyone would have a different definition of what love is. And so when you replace a person with a concept, whoever defines that concept that's the one who has ultimate authority. And so everybody defining love the way they want love to be defined, in my mind, ends up with pure pandemonium, with chaos. Because my definition of love and your definition of love, your definition of love and the person sitting across the aisle from you's definition of love are all completely different. So how do we love one another in the way that our soul longs for and yearns to be loved. What you end up with, and we've talked about this before, is a culture of expressive individualism. It's all about me. And you've got to love me the way I ought to be loved and the way I want to be loved. And so everyone's pursuing their own definition of love. And the challenge with this is that when you disconnect human love from divine love, what you end up with is lawlessness. Every man for himself. And you end up with chaos and pandemonium. And because everyone sees love a different way and creates their own kind of definition for love. I think, and I think the Bible teaches us, that a better, uh, a better uh, way for us to have, uh, is to have love defined by a definitive divine being. I think if we would allow God to define love and what love is, I think we'd end up with better marriages. I think we'd end up with uh, better families, better jobs, a better society, a better community, because we have one objective, absolute standard for what love is. And so is love God or is God love? And that's a question that our culture, humanity as a whole is wrestling with. And I believe that when you make love God, you end up with all kinds of chaos. But if you make God love, I think we can end up with what God had in store and in mind when he created everything. And so God, quite frankly, according to the Bible, is the OG when it comes to love. Some of you don't know what that means. Go ask a teenager or a 20-something or maybe a 30-something now, I don't know. But God's the original lover. He's the one who's perfect and consistent and all-encompassing personification of love. He's the one who defines love. Why? Because he is love. God is love. He invented love. God gets to define what love is. And so if we were to take a, a moment just to stop and in the midst of all of the chaos and craziness and confusion of the world in which we live, everyone trying to define what love is and how you love one another, et cetera, et cetera. What if we were to stop and go back to the original story, not the copied story, not the story uh, that this world lives, but what if we were to go back to God's story and say, God, how do you define love? And God does define love. In fact, I'm going to read it to you. 
And this is a really good moment. Husbands, can I talk to you for a moment? Husbands, this is a really good moment to grab your wife's hand, right? If you're dating, you guys could grab. If you're sitting next to somebody cute, you think they might like you and you might like them, try, I mean, whatever, we're gonna read this. This is the definition of love according to God. This is what he says. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. <laughs> Gareth's getting wild and crazy. Anyway, he says this in 1 Corinthians 14, or 13, verse four. He says, love is patient and it's kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Oh boy, I could do better there. Uh, it's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And then listen to this. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Now what is so amazing is that sometimes we read that verse or we hear that verse read and we go, oh, that's beautiful, you know? What a romantic moment. And, uh, and what we fail to recognize is to whom Paul was writing that letter. And little context, the, the, the city of Corinth was, had been destroyed, um, and the kind of the first version of it, and one of the Caesars was concerned about generals that were going to kind of, you know, kind of potentially rise up against him and kind of create a coup against him. And so what he did was he sent all the generals and their soldiers and freed slaves to this desolate area that had been destroyed called Corinth. And so these generals, these, these soldiers, these freed slaves, in a very short amount of time, they built a thriving city. In fact, someone described Corinth a little bit like Amsterdam, Las Vegas, and Hollywood all combined together and then injected with some steroids, right? I mean, it's worse than you've ever imagined. And they had all kinds of liberty because many of these people didn't have liberty, right? They were freed slaves, but they were still slaves. But all of a sudden, they became affluent. They were gifted. In fact, the, the Bible, when you read First and Second Corinthians, what you recognize is that this church that was trying to be established in this culture that had this crazy definition of love, selfish individualism and, and kind of pursuing, you know, and some of that stuff had come into the church. And so you have this church that's affluent, this church that has influence, this church that's gifted. They've got all these kind of gifts and talents and abilities, but they're not waiting on one another. They're not loving one another. They're not loving the city. And it's into this context that Paul writes this definition of love. And he wants them to understand that you can't live by the world's definition of love. You have to live by God's definition of love because the world's definition of love is rooted in selfishness or expressive individualism, and it ends up creating chaos. But if we could all get on the same page and live out God's definition of love, and here's what's so amazing that when you realize that God's definition of love wasn't a feeling, it wasn't something that was undefined and abstract, right? You know, God's definition of love was a lifestyle that was actually directed towards God and directed towards other people. And so God's really, really clear. God who is love, God who invented love and defined love, God who, gives, who loves us first actually lays out a definition that isn't filled with a bunch of fluffy adjectives, feelings, it's actually tangible, it's a verb, it's something that actually happens and something that I do as a result. And so God clearly defines what love is. And so because God is love, and because he first loves us, then we ought to be those 
who love others. Because God is the one who defines love and he's first loved us, we receive that love. We love him and it fundamentally changes the way I live toward him and towards other people. In fact, it says this in 1 John chapter 4, 7 through 9. He says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Look at that. Where's love from? God, it's from God. It's not from inside of me. I don't get to define it. I'm not the originator. God is the one from whom love comes. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. It's like he just keeps driving a stake into the ground saying, I'm the definition. I'm the source. I'm the original. God is not a copy. God has not come up with some cheap alternative that he's trying to run off with. Like this is what, what love is. God is love. And this, and in this love, this love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And so God is wanting us to understand, if we're living out of God's story, we've got to understand that the definition of love is found in God who is love. In fact, if I could say it this way, loving God and loving people well is the defining characteristic of Christianity. You want to know what a mature believer looks like? A mature believer, because of their love for God, loves other people well. They know how to follow the example of Christ by laying down their life to love and to serve other people. In fact, Jesus seems to make it really, really clear that you can say you love God, but if that love is, doesn't find expression in how you love other people, I'm not so sure you really love God. And remember, if we are living out God's story the way Jesus showed us, we want to follow the example of Jesus who laid down his life so that he could love other people. In fact, Jesus picks up on this theme in a letter that he writes to the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus, um, uh, we talked about this last week, the church in Ephesus is this massive, influential church. There's some 24,000 people that are there. Timothy's pastoring the church. But one of the things that he says in this letter in Revelation chapter 2 is, I see your hard work. I see all the amazing things that you're doing for me. I see how you stand against evil, and I see how you stand for righteousness. But I have this against you. You've lost your first love. In fact, it says it this way. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. And what, what God and what Jesus is writing to his church, in fact, there's no indication that the church in Ephesus ever did make it back to first love. They might have been doing all the right things. They might have been saying all the right things. They might have been standing against all of the wrong things. But the issue at the center was their love for Jesus and their love for other folks. And so we recognize that Jesus, I mean, Jesus picks up on this theme so many times. In fact, Paul in Corinthians, he says, look, if you do all of these things without love, you're nothing more than a clanging cymbal or a noisy going, gong, noisy gong, tongue tied. But Jesus picks up on this theme all the time. And he says this, what's the greatest commandment? Love God. But then he goes on and he says, the second's equal to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
See, God's constantly connecting this love for him, this devotion to him, your affections being stirred for him, and then how you live out your life, how you love and serve other people. I think building a countercultural community that relates maturely to one another uh, is truly one of the greatest gifts that we can give the world. In fact, Jesus actually said this to his disciples. He said, they'll know your love for me by your love for one another. And so maturity, the, the, a true mature believer, someone who's walking and growing in their faith, remember a faith that's rooted in the work of Christ, a faith that's rooted in the gospel, the sign of someone who's rooted and mature and growing is someone who knows how to love God well and love other people too. And that really is the challenge that lies before us. And so the question is, if this is the genetic code that makes up the church, and we'll talk about hope next week, but if faith rooted in the gospel, if love being the aim, you can go read Corinthians. I mean, what an amazing letter that Paul wrote, that it wasn't about knowledge, it was about love, right? How do we love one another better? If, we, if that's the goal, the question is, how do we become that kind of community? How do we become a community that reflects the love of God and I think you might be surprised because sometimes, and I, I, I even did this this morning, my wife didn't have a great night's sleep last night, and, um, and uh, we were chatting this morning, and I said, honey, what can I do for you? Like there's something I could do, right? I have a magic wand, and if I wave it over you, you'll just be not sleepy anymore, right? Like, like but isn't that something that we as husbands tend to do? Come on, husbands, let's just own it for a second, right? Wives, give us a little grace. We're trying, Right? But we always try to fix it, don't we? We always try to do something. And the question, I think, has a surprising answer. The question being, how do we become a community that loves God and loves people well? And I think the answer might surprise you. Because it might actually, you might actually be surprised to understand that I don't think it's about doing something as much as it is posturing ourselves to receive something. You see, we love, Why? Because he first loved us. In fact, it says this in 1 John 4, 19. Let me read it to you. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother from uh, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment that we, we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And what Jesus is trying to help us understand is that these two things are tied together. Now, here's the hard part. Um, sometimes it's hard to receive love because we know ourselves probably better than almost anybody else. And it's hard to receive love because so often we, we live out of this place of, man, if you only knew what I'd done. If you only knew who I was. If you went, flipped back a few pages and you saw the chapters of my life, you, you couldn't love me. And what we do oftentimes is that we project, because if I was fully known, if somebody really knew all of who I am, all of my thoughts and all of my intents of my heart, all of those imaginations that I have, if somebody really knew who I was, there's no way that they could love me. And here's what we do. Oftentimes, we project that onto God. 
If God really knew who I was, there's no way he would love me. And we play this silly game with God thinking that God doesn't know who we are. Like, have you ever stopped to think about that? He's God. Like, he's all-knowing. He's all-seeing. Like, like, we're over here in the corner of our life going, I'm just going to hide this from God. And then, okay, I got it under control. Okay, God, I think, you, I think he might love me now. And then something happens inside and we retreat once again. Because to be fully known and to be fully loved is to be unconditionally loved by God. It's called unconditional love. And this is how God loves us. And yet for some of us in the room, man, we go, man, I don't think, God, God couldn't love me. God's forgotten me. God's forsaken me. There's no way that God could love somebody like me. In fact, in Isaiah 49, um, the children of Israel, the church in the Old Testament, it was referred to as the church in the wilderness uh, in one passage, it said this. It says, but Zion said, and this is, this is Zion. When you see the word Zion in the Old Testament, oftentimes it referred to the people of God or the household of God, right? And so these, this church is saying, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And then God replies and he says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. And what you have here in this little passage in the Old Testament is you have a followers of God, Zion, right? They're questioning, does God really love me? Has God forgotten me? Has God forsaken me? And God responds to them, you know, I mean, it's like this situation. God, don't you see my needs? Lord, don't you care about me? Don't you know the trouble that I'm going through? And God responds to them in verse 15 by using this beautiful metaphor, this beautiful picture. He says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. And you moms in the room know this, that a mother's love for her child isn't just physical and emotional, it's unconditional. When your child is hurting, your natural instinct is to go to the child. You want to pick them up. You want to care for them. You want to take care of whatever might be going on in their life. And what God is saying in this passage is, if that's the love that a mother has for her children, I want you to compare it to the love that I have for you. Because the love of a mother always pursues, always goes after, always drives towards her child. And he goes on and he says, look, even if a mother forgets, I never forget. In other words, he's saying, I'm even better Right, And so he's trying to paint this picture that everything about his glory, everything about his faithfulness, everything about his, his allegiance, everything about his nature and character powerfully moves towards his children. God's not forgotten you. God's not forsaken you. God's not left you behind. God says, no, I'm chasing after you. What's so interesting is that we bring nothing to the table as we talked about a few weeks ago. But God comes after us. Why? Because God is love. God never forgets us. God never forsakes us. What happens is that, that God then actually doubles down in the next verse. Because at this point, it's a beautiful metaphor. That's beautiful. It's a mother taking care of her child. That's wonderful. Jesus, I feel warm and fuzzy, right? 
But how many of you know that love is just talk, it's just talk unless there's action? And we all want kind of, not just words, but we want there to be a demonstration, an action, a love. You know, sometimes we just need to wrap our arms around our spouses or around our kids. Why? Because love is so much more than talk. Love, even when we go back and look at the definition of 1 Corinthians 13, love is a verb. Love is put into action. And Jesus, our God, in this, uh, in this passage says, I need you to really know that I'm not just talking about something. I'm actually doing something about this. I really love you. And he says this in verse 16. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Now, once again, that feels like a beautiful analogy. God was bored one day, and he wrote my name on his hand. Oh, how sweet. That's really nice, right? But that's not what's written there. In fact, in the ancient culture, oftentimes what would happen is that a slave would have the name of his master tattooed on his hand. But never, I mean, never, 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 never would the name of a master or a name of a slave be tattooed onto the master's hand. You see, what that would mean is that that master is completely devoted to the slave. And while that's once again a beautiful picture, that's actually not what's written in the passage. What does it say? It says he engraved our names upon his hand. That Hebrew word for engraved right there literally means to engrave with a hammer or a chisel or a stake into the hands. Centuries later, Jesus would be crucified on a cross and there'd be stakes, there'd be nails driven into his hand. He'd go to the grave and three days later he'd rise and he gathered his disciples and one of the disciples who was hanging back, we call him Thomas, you know, oftentimes this, the characteristic we use to define him is he's one that doubted, doubting Thomas. But Thomas is hanging back, wondering if all of this is true. And, and Jesus calls him, and Thomas asks him, is all of this true? Could you really love me? And Jesus' response was simply this, look at the palms of my hands and see how I love you. Your name is engraved on his hands. And we live in a world that has cheapened love. We live in a world that has said, hey, I'm going to try to define love this way or that way. And it's created all kinds of chaos and confusion, all kinds of pandemonium, all kinds of craziness in the world in which we live. And God says, no, 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 I'm love. I love you. And you ought to never question and wonder if I love you because your name's engraved on the palms of my hands. Jesus would give his life because he loves you that much. At the end of Jesus' life, he instituted uh, a practice that we continue on today. In fact, we call them a sacrament in the church. And it's the sacrament of communion. I'm going to invite the ushers to come. We're going to take communion together because as you're receiving these little elements, Jesus instituted this meal, and it's just that, a meal, to remember, but not just remember, to encounter freshly, daily, time and time again, his love for us.
You guys can go ahead and start passing the cups. What I want you to do is after you maybe get the, get the cup, if you wouldn't mind, just closing your eyes. And I want you just to lock yourself in with Jesus this morning because some of us are maybe agonizing, wondering, man, does God love me? Does God care about me? Has God forsaken me? Because inside every single human being is this innate desire. It's why we as Americans are obsessed with love. And our problem is that we try to redefine it. We try to fill that gap with all kinds of love, all kinds of different things that maybe, well, maybe if I try this, it'll help. And all of it has failed you. All of it. There's a lot of wonderful, good, beautiful things that are gifts of God's grace to us. But there's only one love, the love of your heavenly Father that you were designed to receive and to live out of. That's why Jesus instituted this meal. He said, hey, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. In fact, so interestingly that Paul, writing to the Corinthians, has to instruct them. In fact, it's one of the most severe instructions he gives any church in the New Testament around this idea of communion because the church in Corinth was coming in and just rushing and, man, I'm just going to eat. In fact, they were getting hammered drunk at communion, believe it or not. And he has to write and correct them because he says, you got it all wrong. You think love is this? Chaos? Pandemonium? And you fail to recognize that love is a person. God is love. So Jesus would take this meal. It was Passover night. And he would break bread and he would pour out a cup of wine. And he told them that I want you to do this in not just remembrance. It's why we actually call this a sacrament because there's a grace, there's something even in the moment when we stop from the craziness, the busyness, all the distractions. And when we start to just focus in on he who is the foundation, the epicenter of our love, of our life, the one who first loved us and proved that he loved us by having nails driven into his hand, engraving our name upon his hand. It's Jesus who loves us. And every time we come to the table, we don't just remember, we encounter the love, the grace, the faithfulness, the kindness, the unrelenting nature of God's love for us. Like a mother loves a child, is always driven to pursue. We come to the table knowing God's invited us. He's pursued us to this place. And so, Lord, as we hold this cup of juice, this little cracker, Lord, we recognize that it's a symbol, but Lord, symbols always point to a greater reality. The sign is not the destination, it points to the destination. And Lord, as we week in and week out come to this moment, Lord Jesus, in our gathering together, Lord, it's the epicenter of our gathering. It's the most important thing that we could do in the gathering, not our worship and not our, the preaching of your word, but Lord Jesus, we gather at the table humbly recognizing we bring nothing, but recognizing that, Jesus, you brought everything. 
Oh, is there any question how much you love us? None at all. You've loved us like no one else ever has or ever will. You know us fully. Lord, you know every fault, you know every sin, you know every struggle. Lord, there's nothing that we can hide from you. And yet the table allows us to remember and to experience your love and your faithfulness afresh and anew. We love because you first loved us. We might be faithless, but you remain faithful. So Lord, even as we hold these elements, I just, I just want you to, you to do some business with Jesus. Maybe there's some things just right now that you're just laying out before. Maybe there's some things that you've allowed to take the place of first love in your life, to take a higher priority than your space with Jesus, your time with Jesus, your relationship with him. Now's a good time at the table, at his invitation to reorder your life, to reorder your affections, to reorder your love. Talk to Jesus about it right now. He loves you. He hasn't forsaken you. Jesus, forgive us for allowing other things to take the place of first love. Forgive us, Lord Jesus, for allowing the affections of our heart to be drawn away to lesser things. Lord, not that everything is bad, but Lord, you are you're the one who deserves the priority. You're the one who deserves our greatest affection, our deepest love. And Lord, in this moment, we just recommit saying thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that we don't have to do it in our own strength. Thank you that we love because you first loved us. We're not striving or struggling or trying in our own strength to make it happen. We're just receiving and responding. And Lord, you know how to do that. You know what that means for every individual in this room. And so Lord, as we eat and drink together, Lord, we eat and drink not just in remembrance, but we eat and drink in delight Lord, in experience of that faithfulness and love that you have for each one of us. Let's eat together. Let's drink together. Lord Jesus, thank you once again for your great grace toward us. Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' precious name. And everybody said, amen, amen, amen.